Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. Today's podcast is going to take the format of an interview we did with Justin Urquhart-Stewart on the UK Investor Magazine Virtual Investor Conference, which took place on the 20th of October. Now, this is a very broad discussion. We look at the key investment themes going into the end of 2020. Uh, We touch on US elections. We look at ESG. uh, We discuss Brexit and what it could mean for markets. And we also look at those sectors that we felt were going to drive the recovery in the UK economy. So I do hope you enjoy it. I'm just going to pass you over now to this interview we did with Justin Urquhart-Stewart on the 20th of October. Thank you very much. Right. Good morning, everybody. Right. Okay. So actually, when you look about what's happening at the moment, I think we're in a most magnificent position to actually thinking about uh, investing um, because it's frightening. Everyone gets uh, worried by what they see in the news. Um, and uh, and obviously, the news is pretty, pretty alarming when you look at what's happened over the past nine months with COVID and such like. Um, but we, this is exactly the moment when you need to put things into perspective and you could easily find yourself put into a terrible tailspin of depression uh, watching the evening news. And uh, sometimes I think it's uh, can blame it sometimes on the six o'clock evening news, listening to a depressed Welshman telling you actually what's going on in the world. You watch that night after night, and you end up being really rather depressed. Remember, there's, there's one word that runs an economy, and that's confidence, despite our politicians. Uh, And so despite our politicians, actually, I do have some confidence that actually there is going to be a world after all of this uh, fiasco we're going through. Uh, How can I be so certain of that when you've got uh, a rather strange American election coming up? Strange on the basis we have no idea how it's going to operate and how long it's going to take to actually get a result. Um, And also the issues we've got with the uh, with the pandemic and how that's going to be managed. But you only have to actually have a look at the global economy. And you'll actually find the global economy, although going through another bad patch, indeed, we're still seeing growth. And the outlook for next year is still seeing growth, probably an average around about 4%, which may not sound wildly exciting, but that's actually the long-term average. Now, of course, that's actually to put some emulsion paint over everything, because most of that growth comes from China. Every other area is going to look pretty weak in comparison, but we'll be getting stronger and better. And the reason I say that is, Perversely, although the government finances are going to be in such a mess, interest rates, as we know, are incredibly low, potentially going negative. Of course, in real terms, they're negative anyway. But uh, actually, for those those countries that actually have the ability to have their own currency and actually have have a reserve currency, they have the ability to carry out uh, the, uh, the wonderful method of actually producing their own money with quantitative easing. And uh, it's not so much a confidence trick, it's probably a, a trick of confidence. Uh, and they can do that for a while, and therefore there's no shortage of that finance. But one of the most interesting elements I look at in both America and Britain is the amount of personal finance, personal cash there is sitting on the side. Because one of the, I think, dreadful things, obviously, about this pandemic is not just the awful loss of life and the, the horror that occurs for the, all those families. But also the fact that actually people being at home, they're not spending as much. 
And so they're sitting on cash. Of course, they're spending on all sorts of stuff they probably don't need, courtesy of Argos and Amazon and things like that. You only have to see our roads being clogged up with delivery vans uh, and, of course, endless motorcycles or Lambrettas uh, driving uh, food around all over the place. Heaven forfend that we actually see an accident with some of those Lambrettas because the, the accident will be a terrible mix-up of Chinese food pizzas and Indians all end up in one pile in the middle of the road. Um, so you can actually see, therefore, that uh, parts of the economy are moving. But what you're now going to see coming on the other side of this uh, is that obviously we will be getting uh, uh, in America a very significant uh, economic package coming through, whoever is in power. Um, and uh, that will be something the markets have already priced in to a great extent, but that's going to be there. Um, on the other side of that, if Biden does get in, yeah, you are going to be seeing uh, further investment because obviously the Democrats do have a habit of spending, probably not quite as much as uh, uh, the previous incumbent, although obviously he's still there, um, but obviously not as anywhere near as much as obviously the Republicans who actually wanted to try and balance the budget, something that Trump, of course, hadn't even crossed his mind, assuming that there is one. Um, but what you will also see, of course, is actually that the, uh, that the Democrats will be having taxation. And it's unlikely to be personal taxation, much more likely in terms of corporate taxation. Um, but it's not going to be necessarily that damaging overall because he'll need those corporates uh, to be continue to grow. The other element, of course, is that one, despite the fact that Mr. Trump keeps on talking about a vaccine being available almost immediately, apart from the Russians, of course, who claim to have already done it, uh, the vaccine will come through after testing, I suspect. When it's going to be, none of us know. But the general view, I suspect, is first half of next year at some stage. And the very fact that comes through does not mean the entire world is therefore protected from it. But it'll give a huge boost of confidence that actually maybe we can manage this thing through at last. And therefore, you're going to see uh, that confidence actually being rebuilt. So I think what is interesting, therefore, is therefore not to look so much at the short term, which is going to be giving us much more volatility, um, which in itself is an opportunity if you still think the world's going to be around. Um, uh, and, but uh, also then see how these markets and these economies are changing. Now, of course, as consumers, bear in mind as consumers, we're the primary driver of the UK economy, as in America, um, we can see these things directly. Obviously, we can see what we've been buying with our technology and the technology companies, we all know, have been doing really rather well. We can see the change that's happening in the high street and the devastation there. But again, put this in perspective. Remember, this time last year, we were heading for a very significant slowdown, potentially even two quarters of slowdown, i.e. a recession, uh, would have been quite uh, probable. Uh, and so therefore, when you see some of the companies going bust, some of them are going to go bust anyway. Whether it's Carluccio's or Jamie Italia last year, these were beasts of private equity. Now, there are good private equity companies, the White Knights, and there are Dark Knights. The Dark Knights are those who are, uh, frankly, they are uh, just uh, uh, fee junkies, uh, deal junkies, waiting for the next deal to be done. Remember, most private equity operates on the basis of a three-year cycle. They'll claim five years. That's only if they cock it up. So, therefore, any company which is actually in that system finds itself endlessly having to try and plan for the next three-year cycle, which, of course, is not a business cycle. That's one made up by the private equity firms. So these companies were already under stress. Those two went bust anyway. Others in the high street were going to go bust. And this has just merely brought that forward. As, of course, as the technology that we're using today brought forward the way in which companies operate. That does not mean we're not going to have offices anymore, but it means that the way we use offices will be changing.
what it's actually going to look like, we don't know yet. But good, well-run companies, and just think about how you would run your company, you're still going to have an office of some kind, and you'll want people actually to meet together, because that's, after all, how we mentor people, how we train them, we bring them on, and how we uh, in actually make sure that they're properly motivated and with the right ethic and culture coming through. And that's something that really, over Zoom and these other mechanisms, isn't that easy to be able to do. The other theme worth looking at has come out of this really very dramatically, and it was, again, it was occurring anyway, um, is this issues with regard to uh, governance, with regard to ethics, social, um, and environmental investing. And there are all sorts of lovely acronyms we've got for this uh, in terms of actually uh, how companies should be behaving. But even the worst oil companies are now having to come out with statements as to why they're going to be so green and socially acceptable over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Remember BP, I think it was about five years ago, were laughed at hysterically when they said, actually, BP now stands for Beyond Petroleum. Well, exactly. That's exactly what they are now, trying to say that they are beyond petroleum and they want to be carbon neutral uh, by 2050. Now, whether that's achievable or not, that's not the point. The point is that all these companies are now having to change their colors. And it's not just the oil companies and the other carbon producing companies, but actually all companies are almost going to have to have that badge. And those that don't do that will find themselves in a difficult situation. And I certainly find for investors that one of the things they're asking for in portfolios is not a bit of greenwash. Here's my portfolio. And, oh, yes, by the way, could I have something which is uh, environmentally acceptable to be nice to hedgehogs? Now I actually want to have something which is mainline that actually is going to be uh, environmentally acceptable, socially acceptable, responsibly run with the right ethic and the right governance um, right the way through my portfolio, please. And that's not just not a matter of being nice. Actually, it's also a matter of running good businesses and therefore investors investing in good businesses. So I welcome this, not as one of those lovely things for wishy-washy liberals to get involved in, but actually sheer practical capitalism that actually these are going to be it's a good measure of how businesses should be run. So the short-term issues, whilst we're in this, we're going to see some more volatility. You can use that volatility, for my view, picking up very simply, without being terribly clever, using indices and ETFs where you've got some of the major indices dropping quite dramatically on odd days, have some cash just to go and pick that up. Trying to pick individual stocks at moments like this can be really quite difficult. But next year, I think there are going to be some fascinating issues as you see these uh, companies uh, change and these sectors change. Let me give you one example. Uh, if you take transport, particularly airlines, um, airlines are in a terrible state at the moment. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing positive about them at all. But you have to say that after all of this, are we still going to need airlines? The answer is, well, yes, of course we are. People are still going to want to be flying around. And the airplanes are getting cleaner and all that sort of thing. But nonetheless, they'll be there. In the meantime, what's happened is a lot of those weaker companies have either gone bust, merged, um, or just quietly disappeared, or even actually come back as we saw with uh, Flybee yesterday, uh, a sort of phoenix coming out of the ashes. And that's going to be an interesting theme for next year. As you see, companies in certain sectors literally going bust, but a core within it actually then coming back with finance. Or you'll see larger companies themselves selling off assets because they need the capital to re-strengthen themselves. And so other businesses coming out, which will be worth investing in as well. It's almost subsets of those. So I find that fascinating. So back to the airline industry again, what you're going to find is the strongest ones will be in a great position. 
So whether you approve of how British Airways or International Airlines Group have behaved in terms of how they were paying their, particularly the, not just uh, their pilots, but also their cabin crew, um, in terms of how they changed the, the uh, contracts, in terms of how they changed the planes, and how they changed the whole structure of that business, it's allowed them to be able to, under the sort of guise of the pandemic, to completely restructure this business. So when it does come back, they're in a position to actually find themselves in a really quite profitable future um, on the basis that will still be needs for airlines. There will be airlines. It's just there'll be less of them. Uh, and I think that's going to be fantastic. So start applying that to other sectors and other areas. And you can see how that's going to change. So in terms of themes that we've got here, we've got those that have been destroyed and you've got the Phoenix companies coming out from them as well. You've got those companies which are, will be taken apart as companies need to restructure themselves and sell off assets they actually don't want to have. You're going to be, have key areas which may not come back in the way that we saw before. And that may be part of the high street and uh, how that's being formed uh, will reformed. It will be back. It's still going to be there, but it won't look exactly the same. It'll have a different sort of format. Um, and particularly in terms of property as well. And I don't mean housing property, but actually in terms of office property, where you've had companies there, large, those large um, uh, property uh, uh, companies suffering greatly with what happened in terms of the pricing they had for some of the shopping centers. But again, they were hugely leveraged, some of those. And we saw the problem you had with uh, Intu with that. Uh, but again, they'll be restructuring and changing other ones. I mean, not so much Intu. Um, so that's going to be fascinating. In terms of uh, domestic housing as well, well, the demand is there and the government will be loosening up, has already been loosening uh, planning demands. So, again, there's going to be more coming through for that. And, of course, all of that means that there's therefore going to be greater demand down through the supply chain. Uh, and that supply chain has changed as well. Because one of the things that companies are trying to do as they are trying to de-risk themselves from not just this pandemic, but another wave or another pandemic or something else we don't know about, is actually reducing that supply chain uh, and narrow, shortening it. It's not so much that we're not going to be making iPhones in uh, China anymore. We're going to start making iPhones in Isleworth. But actually, things that can be produced and sourced locally probably will be on the basis that actually it's more reliable. I can make sure they can be delivered on time. I'm de-risking some of my business. And it's interesting to see actually how already businesses are trying to do that uh, and actually sometimes creating some of those uh, local businesses themselves or investing in them to try and make sure that infrastructure is there. And that's not just being done in London, it's all being done also around the country. One other area we have to take account of, whether we like it or not, is obviously Brexit. Uh, not just our incompetent politicians who haven't got a clue what they seem to be doing, um, but actually what is the agreement going to be around Brexit? Now, I only hope, I believe, that there will be agreement because you'd be bloody stupid not to have an agreement. Uh, excuse my language, um, uh, because it's stupid for everybody. But let's assume there is an agreement. Um, and therefore, we do end up with trade moving relatively smooth in a smooth manner. Um, and the Irish border issue isn't such a problem. If there isn't an agreement, then Kent becomes a car park. And the issues we've got over the Irish border really become uh, also more difficult, more intransigent to try and manage their way through. Uh, so I don't want to get into the details of what's right and wrong about fishing and all those elements. That's for the politicians to try and negotiate and sort out. But it's something as investors we need to be aware of. So one of those other themes coming out of 2020 going into next year, and I think that will provide us, I think, with some 
very good opportunities. So strong companies looking stronger using the pandemic to be able to uh, change their structure, get themselves stronger and to come back into a market with probably less competitors. Recovery businesses, reinvestment businesses, um, and uh, that all provides us with that opportunity. For those who aren't so keen on individual stock investment themselves, then don't worry. We have enough choice of ETS and indices now of subsectors within that, that you can very easily actually make a perfectly sensible portfolio of different indices. It's very cheap and indeed to manage, effectively divided up by different asset classes. So not having to run the risk of actually having to pick an individual stock, as Sod's Law always tell you, with the pick stock you pick, it's the one next door that does well, and the one that you did picked actually didn't for whatever reason that you couldn't see at the time. Another issue for this, we should also look internationally. Uh, China is already recovering, and you can see the impact that is already having uh, elsewhere. Now, you don't know me from Adam. Uh, Adam's much nicer. But, uh, but the issue is, uh, for me, a lot of my family come from the Far East, still there. And so I take much more interest in what's happening. You can see in Southeast Asia. Uh, the effect of the Chinese recovery uh, is having. And you can see the ASEAN nations already benefiting from that. And a continuing theme, and forgive me if I'm boring those I've spoken to before, of the rise of the Oriental consumer. It's a bit patronizing because the Oriental consumer has always been there, but now the Oriental consumer is more powerful in the shape of my daughter. Um, and so you know, the rise of the huge, great uh, shopping centers and such like, uh, there's disposable uh, cash and credit, um, there's a lot more spending to be done. So you're seeing that already come out. And I think that's going to be relatively positive. Japan as well, where you've seen the restructuring there happening in Japan. And Japan's always been one of those countries that, well, maybe it's this year. Well, to my view, you always have to have some exposure to Japan. But as an economy, it's never one I've really fully understood. Be wary of China. China, of course, in terms of actually its businesses itself, remember all Chinese businesses, particularly if quoted, are reliant upon one major element, which may not necessarily be a shareholder directly. And that, of course, is the Chinese Communist Party. Companies can only go bust. Major companies can only bust in China if the Communist Party allows them to. Uh, and uh, if they won't allow them to, then funnily enough, they don't go bust. The set of accounts you get off Chinese companies will vary. They make Italian ones look positively truthful. Uh, so again, be really rather wary of what you're dealing with. But it's the impact of China as much as anything else. Apart from the fact I counted up 17 border disputes around its entire uh, border. Mind you, it has got some very large borders. So some geopolitical issues with Japan, South China Sea, India in Northeast India, Kashmir with India again. Um, that was just to think it was Indian Pakistan problem. It was until actually China managed to take about 35% of Kashmir for itself to look after itself. Nice to be looked after by the Chinese government. Just ask the uh, Tibetans. Um, so the, those issues are rumbling around in the background. And then also India as well. And we can start seeing changes uh, there as, again, more confidence starts coming back. This will then ripple through. And you were hearing more a bit later about what uh, the issues are for metals and commodities. As you see more confidence coming through, you're going to see more uh, of that coming back. So those are my idea of the themes that we should be looking at coming out of 2020 um, and uh, then looking forward. Is that a start? Very good start, Justin. Thank, thank you very much. So I do, I do want to go back to, uh, to the beginning uh, of uh, the subjects that you were touching on. Yeah. Look, first of all, at the US elections. 
Um, and I just want to point out to the attendees that we will be releasing the next, uh, the, the first poll in, in the next few minutes. So keep an eye out for that. But Justin, going back to the US elections, we've had a discussion before, and typically we see negativity in markets when the Democrats win. Uh, we've already seen a very sharp rally in US equities. To what extent do you think that is investors pricing in a Biden win? And could we see a uh, buy the rumour, sell the facts scenario on a Biden win, um, which um, we, where we actually see a quite a significant sell off on that uh, on that victory by Biden? And what do you actually think the chances are of Biden getting in? Uh, the last bit first is uh, I think Biden will get in. Mind you, I also thought that Hillary would uh, win last time. So um, what would I know? Actually, it was my American business partner who pointed out to me it wasn't so much that Trump, everyone was voting for Trump. It's just that everyone loathed Hillary. And I hadn't quite twigged that. He had to be an American, I think, probably to work that one out. Uh, Biden may not exactly say the world that set the world alight, um, but uh, nonetheless, he ain't Hillary. Um, and uh, so therefore, he's likely to, uh, to, to, to win. And you're absolutely right. Um, Democrats are seen as taxers and tax and spenders, um, and therefore companies will no doubt be looking for further tax increases. And so I think an awful lot of optimism has been put in. But bear in mind, this recovery you've seen in America is on a very narrow scale. It's mostly around uh, the, uh, the tech stocks. And those tech stocks have done very well indeed. They're very highly priced at the moment, but you can see why. Um, and so therefore, is the strength for moving out elsewhere uh, into the broader indices and elsewhere in the economy? And the answer is, yes, there is. Uh, so you need to be very careful at the moment because you will find, I think, quite a significant uh, pullback uh, in, on the index uh, because there will be that sort of wave of uh, enthusiasm. Now, along comes the package, presumably a few weeks after maybe before, but I doubt it, a few weeks after the, uh, uh, after the election. And uh, so there'll be that wave uh, of uh, enthusiasm. And that's probably then when you get that sort of sell-off thereafter. Uh, but that doesn't mean necessarily the whole thing stops. Um, um, and it'd be in Biden's interest to actually make sure that corporates still maintain that confidence to make sure that's, that's coming through. Um, what was the next bit? I've forgotten that one. I'm behaving a bit like Biden now. So we're talking about the, the buy the rumour, sell the facts set up in, in markets. Very strong rally we've seen, yeah. anticipating to some extent a Biden victory. Could we see that all unravel uh, on, on a, a Biden victory? Yeah, that, but not just the victory, but the package that comes afterwards, um, whatever size it is. You know, we're dealing with trillions, and I can't even get a trillion on my calculator, uh, but huge sum coming through. Um, and once that's seen to be agreed... Um, that's the positive news. That's when you're quite likely to see that that sort of fall down in the souffle as the confidence falls off because they then want to see really what's the next stage of it. Bear in mind, the other bit that will give you a boost of confidence will be suddenly the vaccine. If there is the vaccine, which looks to save us all, it won't be that simple, um, but uh, there'll be a serious development over it, a series of issues that will get more confidence. So, yes, be wary of that. Uh, it, I think people have been very surprised by the strength. I was certainly surprised by the strength of recovery after the drop off, but it has been very narrowly focused indeed. So we've had a couple of questions in the chat about Brexit and uh, just looking at the early results from the poll. Uh, the biggest concern for investors over the next six months is by far COVID. 
Yep. So, and second place is Brexit. So I want to try and tie those two together. I mean, what's your views on, on Boris Johnson using uh, COVID-19 as a backdrop to push through a hard Brexit and see any negative impact of, of a hard Brexit uh, be swallowed up by uh, by COVID? I mean, is that something that you think he'll, he'll try to do? And do you think that... Uh, the sort of longer impact of, of Brexit will, will be pretty negative if it's a hard one. If it's a hard one, it will be. And frankly, it'd be very stupid. You know? And you have these people saying, but the Europeans need us because of the amount of the trade balance between us. Obviously, uh, it's in, in, in their favour. But obviously, but equally, the EU is our largest trading partner. Uh, and we need them to be operating and allowing us in. So it'd be very silly of us not to have a deal. And I appreciate the fishermen are emotionally attached to most people in terms of you know, people sitting there with uh, uh, watching the brave men going out on their trawlers and things like that. But in terms of the economy, it's tiny. Um, and so well, emotionally, yes, but in, economically, not that important. So uh, a hard Brexit would be stupid to try and have. Uh, I suspect, as all politicians, with the exception of the New Zealand prime minister, um, will find it incredibly difficult managing covid um, because what's the right way of doing it? We can all criticise the current policies of partial lockdowns, regional lockdowns, complete lockdowns, all those issues, let alone actually trying to remember what the rules are. But what would we do? And at what stage do you have the judgment of Solomon, which says, actually, there comes a stage where you just have to live with it. And live with it means you, that means you're going to have to actually say we're going to suffer some levels of a rate of mortality which would be acceptable, which is a dreadful thing to say. But we do have an acceptable rate of mortality for other things as well. Um, we haven't got to that stage yet, um, but uh, no, I'm afraid we'll be creeping towards it. And where's the level of mortality? Which bit is affecting? The answer is, well, old farts like me, uh, anybody who's at retirement age plus, um, and those are the ones that will be uh, most at risk. Um, so it's going to be really difficult to balance their way through it. But Boris and his, uh, and his government at the moment are not looking very strong over this. Um, and I think the issue of the union, no matter what one's issue and one's view is, uh, of, uh, uh, let's say, the, uh, of Scottish independence, that will again start affecting uh, confidence in the UK. But be wary. Confidence in the UK does not translate to the FTSE 100. Remember, the FTSE 100, as I know, uh, many of the viewers will know already, is not a UK index. It's many, many ways a, a global index. It's been lagging behind. Um, and in my view, is currently quite, quite significantly undervalued indeed. Um, meanwhile, we're going to have to see exactly uh, um, what the, uh, uh, the uh, Scottish leader is going to be doing. But unfortunately, we're going to find ourselves in a position where she is now uh, going to be in a much more powerful position to try and win another referendum if she manages to get one agreed. Uh, so uh, be wary of that risk as well. So, Justin, just want to come up to a point that you made there on the FTSE 100 lagging. Uh, if we're looking at statistics from the 23rd of March, and that, that was the low after the initial COVID-19 sell-off, uh, we have the FTSE 100 up 18%. The S&P 500 is up 55%. The Nasdaq is up 70% and the Shanghai index is up 36, whilst the German DAX is up 47%. So all of those major indices very much uh, in front of the FTSE 100. Is it a case that in international investors have just forsaken UK equities? 
there's a general view at the moment is whilst they like the companies and or some of the companies in the index, they just don't want to invest in Britain at the moment, even though the index doesn't reflect Britain. It's a matter of saying, can we just avoid that for the time being? So we have a better idea exactly what Britain's position is going to be in or outside Europe. Well, how it's going to be outside Europe, um, how it's going to be operating with its apparent free trade deals now that we can sell Wensleydale cheese to the Japanese. Brilliant. Um, and uh, also uh, how they manage, as everyone else is going to have to try and manage the COVID issue as well. So it has lagged behind. But also look at some of the major constituents in there. A lot of the oil uh, metal resource companies, commodity companies, um, and they have obviously been very heavily hit. So there will be uh, a push back up there as we start seeing the economy improve internationally. And this this uh, left behind value will start uh, being picked up again. So that does give me some some encouragement, but it won't be something that's going to be happening overnight. It will be that I suspect is something I'd be looking at for uh, mid uh, 2021. Fantastic. So I, I just want to bring uh, the topics back to the UK now and, and yeah. ties in with uh, with the only business regionally. So. It appears that international investors uh, are not paying too much attention to the, to the UK. So it's going to be down to some extent UK based investors um, to drive the, the growth going forward. I mean, when you're sort of looking at particular sectors within the UK, which ones do you feel are going to be the most important ones that takes us out of this recession? Um, and that could be particular industries or it could be um, yeah. sort of larger industries or is it going to be sort of smaller companies that, uh, that take us out? First of all, look at where you're seeing companies benefiting already. So we're seeing technology, we're seeing online sales um, and uh, uh, food and distribution. All those areas have been benefiting and will continue to benefit. Um, and so that's going to be one element. Another one which is a more interesting to me in many ways, uh, but is for those investors who are willing to take a higher level of risk, um, are, is something which is we, we've been very good at in the United Kingdom compared to 40 years ago. 40 years ago, we weren't wildly entrepreneurial. Uh, our parents, well, my, many parents of uh, my generation, would have been, they didn't uh, go off and go and set their own business up. They worked for the government. They were uh, worked for the, uh, the forces in some way. They worked for a large corporation or they were a professional, lawyer, accountant, something like that. Um, but they didn't say, actually, I'm going to go off and have my own business. I remember my mother asked me that, saying, what do you want to do? I want to have my own business. Oh, my God, you want to go into trade? You realize we have a separate door for that. Um, and that was very much the attitude. That changed. Why? Not just Mrs. Thatcher. Maybe it's because people were forced out to go and become a consultant, which is a euphemism for an unemployed banker. Um, but we have found ourselves starting up more businesses than Germany and France put together. Incredibly entrepreneurial. Have we all been watching Dragon's Den? So we were setting up a lot of small businesses. Now, the problem has been we're good at setting up businesses. We're actually dreadful, not so much at financing startups. There are lots of ideas there. It's the next stage. In Germany, you have the middle stat, which was all sorts of different types of middle stat companies, but it's middle sized companies and growing. We have a lot of growing medium sized businesses. Where do they get the capital from? Banks? That's not their job. Banks are supposed to provide cash flow. Uh, not very good at that either. Do they go to the stock market? No, no, not really, because the London Stock Exchange concentrates on, well, well-known British companies like Aramco and things like that. As for AIM, I'm sorry, I was involved in the startup of AIM. We started it in Glasgow 35 years ago. It was a low-cost, light regulation, simple market, going back to the original concept of a stock exchange, which is not to buy and sell shares. It is to raise capital for business in the most cost-efficient manner. 
Now, it's expensive, inefficient, and badly run, in my view, and frankly, it serves little purpose other than, uh, frankly, being an inheritance tax uh, avoidance mechanism. Legitimate, but that's not my idea of an exchange. So that's why I'm very keen on actually looking at those smaller businesses who find it difficult to find funding, so often between half a million and 10 million. That's that area where you're too big to be small, so angels can't really help on their own, groups can, but you're too small to be big, so the institutions won't touch you. So it's a really difficult area. Now you go to the regions, and I have to argue this often with uh, various people at the BBC, and you go to the business parks of the regions, and you'll find they're busy. Okay, quieter at the moment than they have been, um, but nonetheless, really very busy indeed. Uh, forgive me, we're probably about to get interrupted by a Burmese cat, so I do apologize in advance. Um, but what you'll find actually is these businesses need further capital. Now, there's no shortage of capital in this, in this country. What you have to try and do is make sure there is a mechanism whereby investors regionally, nationally or internationally have a mechanism to get into invest in good quality regional growing businesses and not have to go via London and all those costs. So as these ideas start coming through and the mechanisms start providing uh, regional investment opportunities, I think that's going to be very exciting for investors. This is not for widows and orphans. It's for those of us who are willing to sign us ourselves off as professional investors and be willing to take that sort of risk. But those are the businesses which are likely to the ones going to be growing. Some will get taken over. Um, and a lot of those are often based around technology. And compare our economy with Germany. Germany is a great economy, but a lot of it's based on manufacturing. It's not to say that we don't do manufacturing. Remember, we're still the world's, what, eighth largest manufacturer. Um, uh, but nonetheless, the Germans are very good manufacturers. We are far better at technology. If you go back to that awful term of silicon this, silicon that, you know, we've got silicon, well, silicon glen, silicon fen, silicon beach, silicon roundabout, um, and all those issues, they're just sort of just you know, uh, titles. But you look at the universities throwing off technology areas, uh, businesses, these need to be investment ready. And that's where a lot more work needs to be done. But if we can do that on a regional basis, and it's been done before, because in 1945, there were, in fact, 45 stock exchanges in Britain. Now, most of them were moribund. There were seven regional ones of some scale. I'm not suggesting we reinvent stock exchanges because they're inefficient and run by silly gits red braces who don't help. Damn, that's me. But what you can do, though, is actually have a, center, uh, have a hub whereby you can high profile regional businesses of a certain style, type, and particularly at the moment, people like technology. They like, want to make sure they've got ESG, sustainable, well-governed, environmental businesses. Um, and they can see these in the regions and so therefore attract more money into those areas rather than necessarily having to go via funds or by going via large companies uh, in the main market. So this is where the excitement is. So forgive me if I'm not saying here's an immediate answer, but the innovation that you're seeing in this area is going to throw up more opportunities for investors. And I think that's going to be very exciting. Fantastic. So ju just uh, one last uh, question in here, Justin, before we have to uh, to finish off. I mean, how important do you feel? I mean, there is a lot of evidence that, that smaller companies do lead countries out of uh, re recessions. But this is slightly different in, in COVID at, at this point, to some extent. I mean, how much do you feel um, that, that smaller companies specifically to COVID are going to take us out? Or do you think it's going to have to be some of these larger companies, 
utilising their existing infrastructure. What do you think the balance is going to be there? It's going to be interesting because, as I was describing earlier with the likes of British Airways, um, or IAG, um, those that have used COVID as the, me- as the cloak to be able to restructure themselves, they come out into a, a fresher world, a le- leaner business in a leaner economy. Um, and so, yes, they will provide that, leading, that, that leadership in that area. But if we structure it properly, smaller businesses are going to provide greater return and greater growth opportunities uh, for people. But by the very nature of them being smaller businesses, they're not that liquid um, and uh, they don't always have the, the, the track record that you would uh, have for a larger business. Um, mind you, that's not always a um, necessarily a good measure either. Um, but will provide, I think, a, a great opportunity. And that will help the economy rather than necessarily so much the, uh, the, us as investors. It will throw up opportunities for us for investors. But locally, and again, it goes back to one of my previous themes, the fact that we're seeing more localization will throw up more of those opportunities for people setting up local businesses which provide services which otherwise will be provided uh, elsewhere along the supply chain or quite often internationally as well. Uh, so I believe, actually, yes, you'll have the corporations uh, coming out. But if we are giving it enough support in this country, I think the smaller companies are going to be the area where we're going to show ourselves being most dynamic and provide investors with the greatest opportunities. That's where I'll be looking. Fantastic. Justin, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Great pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me. We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember all investment involves risk.